Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk about the scout mindset, how to think clearly whether you're looking at financial planning, investing, or other issues in your life. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, great to see you. Hey, good to see you as well. We're approaching July 4th rapidly. That always feels like the midpoint of the summer to me. It happens to also be my birthday, but it's like a that's like a very dividing line marker for me on whether or not we're at the, the back half of the summer or not. Yeah, it came quick. My goodness. Uh, well, hopefully our folks are out there getting some travel in and, and enjoying some time uh, with, with the kids that are out of school and all of that good stuff. We're getting into kind of a fun topic today, Dan. We're talking about a book. We're almost doing this like a book report. I do think that's kind of funny just in terms of the format, but we're, do, but we're basically doing a book report today. To pull back the curtain a little bit, in true book report fashion... Ross, you have actually consumed the book, and I feel like I am way back in ninth grade again and did not. I, I cheated and, and took like cliff notes and read interviews, uh, but did not read the book. I am very excited to check it out, though. That's very funny. Uh, I, I do appreciate that, and that, that feels about like how it would have been in school. So uh, the book report theme stands true. But the book that we're talking about today is from an author named Julia Galef, and it is called The Scout Mindset, Why Some People See Things Clearly and Others Don't. Uh, and you're correct. I started getting into this, and I, I listened to it. I didn't read it. Uh, I was spending a bunch of time in the car. It was a good audiobook for me. Really enjoyed it. I got excited to talk about several of the themes, and I think it's the type of stuff that you and I talk about pretty frequently when it comes to investing which is the exploration of bias in a bunch of different ways. So uh, I thought it, it fit well with our show. Yeah, getting into it, I mean, all the themes I read tied directly to the way I think about both investing and financial planning for that matter. Both in life and in your investing journey, I think a lot of these themes carry over. Yeah, so the way Julia kind of presents the, the information is really through two mindsets, the first of which she calls the soldier mindset, and the second of which, or the more desirable in most cases, is the scout mindset. And the difference being uh, whether or not you've got certain levels of bias or motivated reasoning. Uh, and inside the soldier mindset, the idea is that you're generally thinking with a purpose. And in this example, we can think of a position that we already are inclined to believe, right? And that you might ask yourself when you're presented with new information, could this be true? Right? And if you're inclined to believe something already, if the, even if the headline agrees with you, could this be true? You immediately kind of check the box and go, yep, that's it. The opposite side of the motivated reasoning coin is when you don't want it to be true. And your question for yourself is, do I have to believe this? Uh, and I think that that is a common way that I tried to think uh, or, or I guess the, a way that I think when I'm being presented with like a bear case, for example. So on a company that we own, I tend to try and look at both 
sides of the argument. If I read an article that happens to be very bullish, I will then look for one that's taking the opposite view. Uh, but you're clearly, if you already own the position or you're already inclined that you want to own the position, you're going to be motivated by one of those because it's going to agree with your thesis. The scout mindset, on the other hand, is really uh, an openness to, to just looking for the truth uh, and trying to remove as much of that bias as possible from your decision-making process, uh, which I think is difficult. But again, she kind of describes the scout as... Uh, almost like a map maker, right? Somebody or like a you know cartographer that's going around and each additional piece of data that improves the map simply makes it better. It's not that you're feeling attacked by the new information. It's not that you're feeling like you're wrong. You're simply trying to be more and more accurate. Uh, and so I really liked that framework uh, in terms of how we think about investing, how we think about financial planning, uh, that we should be pursuing accuracy, right, in, in the face of our biases. And we know that there's a lot of biases in investing uh, and, and in financial planning. And so, uh, again, this, this really spoke to me as I was going through it in terms of thinking it was helpful. And a lot of her takeaways are how to move yourself more into the scout mindset, not necessarily you need to be this way and this is the right way of life and the right way of thinking. I think there are probably healthy times where you should fall into both camps. But doing almost an audit of yourself and making sure that you're not trapped in that soldier mindset. And one of the things that she talks about that really resonated with me as a contrarian was how you behave in this counterfactual world. Out of everything I read, that was the thing that excited me the most. And it's kind of removing yourself from your body, like creating a new reality and seeing how you would think if that were true. And, um, you know, a couple of the examples for doing that is there's something she calls the conformity test, essentially. So if everybody else felt differently about the, the matter than they do in real life, would you still hold the same belief that you do? So maybe you're in the majority now. If everyone suddenly flipped and now you were in the vast minority of, with this opinion, would you still hold it or do you think you would be inclined to, to switch sides? The other one I really like is called the selective skeptic test where if evidence didn't support my theory, would I automatically throw that evidence away or would I absorb it and, and take it in? So those kinds of things I think are really healthy, just looking at it from the other side and creating this different reality and seeing, all right, if that were the case, what do I think I would do? And I think you also need to be sure that you're being honest with yourself and answering those questions because that can also be a, a trap if you're in this echo chamber of constantly validating your opinions. There's no doubt about that. And the echo chamber concept is one that I think of a lot, both in terms of uh, what we're talking about now is kind of a personal finance lens. Um, I also think about it from a political lens, and I'm not going to go down that that path. But uh, I just generally believe if you're consuming slanted opinions from kind of one side or the other, right? I mean, this is not a, a party line thing. I think all of us need to recognize that we are being presented with information that we're likely to click on. Wherever you're getting your news from, right? Like my Google results are what Google thinks I want to see because of what I've been clicking on and what I'm likely to click on in the future. It literally presents me that information. My Facebook wall shows me things that it thinks I'm gonna click on so that it maximizes how many ads I look at. If I go to a newspaper, it's going to show me my version of it, right? Every single thing that we look at is essentially being tailored on the internet to your preferences. Recognizing that and, and then trying to counterbalance it. And that doesn't mean 
in, intentionally going out and finding things that you think are nonsense. It means going out and trying to find somebody making a reasonable opinion on the other side. Uh, and so kind of to, to the point I, I was making earlier, if you're looking for a bear case on a stock that you own, don't look at one that's nonsense, right? Like look at something that actually makes sense so that you're truly uh, questioning yourself a little bit and, and having to face somebody that you believe is reasonable making an argument that's kind of opposing to your own. Uh, I think that that's a much more balanced way of getting at it. Again, if it's like a really hotly contested issue for you or something that you're very passionate about, that may be more difficult. Uh, but I generally find looking for an informed opinion on the other side helps me balance out my own thought process so that I'm, I'm trying to at least take a clear look at things. I think it also means taking a step back and, and taking some time to internalize the, the information you're getting. I'm oftentimes like very immediate with my opinions. Uh, and then after spitting them out, take a second and like, wait, let me, let me think about it for a bit. And just that separation and that time gives you the opportunity to see the other side and to let things cool down, especially if it's a heated topic or uh, if it's a, a critical decision, right? You don't often want to make those in the moment and you want to look at all the facts that are available to you. So by looking at other opinions or perhaps outside sources you're not familiar with, it gives you the best chance to make the best decision. I mean, Dan, from a planning perspective, when you're dealing with somebody new that comes in and they're starting to look for an opinion on, are they okay? Or are they on track for retirement? How quickly do you generally have that gut instinct? Because for me, it's pretty quick. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's almost immediate just because you've done it for so long that you feel like if you hear these certain things and see certain numbers relative to whatever goals we're looking at, that you have an instinct that, all right, they should be pretty much on track. Um, there have been times where my instinct has been totally wrong. And it's always very interesting to uncover that and figure out why, you know, what are the factors that led me to, to have the wrong initial instinct. I think you and I actually both had examples of this pretty recently. So you had one where you had me look at a case uh, essentially to see if there was enough life insurance. Um, do you remember this? This is just I like do, a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Yeah. And, and I think your instinct was that they were drastically underinsured. And what it really came down to was a massive survivor benefit on a pension that, yes, the, they were probably underinsured if that income stream didn't continue. But if it did, it actually didn't look that bad. Right. And you need to do the digging. It takes time. So even though there are nice rules of thumb that you can follow, you have to go a layer deeper than that, especially for decisions as important as financial security. I similarly had an example where I was kind of questioning my own deeply held beliefs. Um, and you and I have talked on this show and, and a lot in person about our bias against life insurance as an investment vehicle. And uh, one of my clients was presented with a life insurance contract really as an investment vehicle, and they brought it to me. It was an outside service provider that was kind of pitching this thing. Uh, and I had to really make sure that I wasn't rejecting something that would be good for them simply out of my bias, right? Because my bias generally comes from the fact that I think a lot of life insurance is sold improperly. Right when you've got, and, and we see these, we've seen a couple of examples of this in our practice really recently, where just gross uh, overselling of the benefits of life insurance for like education needs and people that simply need a savings account, and and they're being sold whole life policies instead. 
I had to really double double back on that and make sure that I wasn't rejecting it because that was my my core held belief. Yeah, I just saw the other day a young young woman who had a whole life policy when when really what she should have been doing was saving into almost anything else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pe- people that haven't maxed out Roth IRAs should not be doing whole life contracts, right? I mean, that, it's just the wrong vehicle. If if that is an eligible category for you to save in. Because you're being told, yeah, this is going to be tax-free money, which is essentially because you're just borrowing against your own pool of assets. But the Roth is also going to be tax-free growth and tax-free money without some of those same restrictions. So uh, it absolutely doesn't make sense if you've got access to a Roth to be funding a whole life policy for that reason. It doesn't mean the p- contract is, couldn't be valid. But again, it, we, I just see them sold improperly so often that I had to go like really, really deep with myself on, am I rejecting this for the right reasons? Does this actually make sense and make sure that my client wasn't missing something that, that could have been valuable? By the way, this exercise that we're going through right now and talking about times where we've had these deeply held beliefs or initial instincts that we found to be wrong is something that Julia says is a healthy activity to push yourself into that scout mindset. You should be able to find times in your past where you have changed your mind, essentially, or, or realized that a deeply held belief was incorrect because you got new information. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I think people think of that as flip-flopping, right? And, and very rarely will I try and change somebody's mind on something that they hold as a deeply held belief, right? It, it's just not valuable for the most part. And again, you know, st- something that we've talked about on our show a lot of people view reducing their debt as a core goal, right? Not necessarily that they believe it is going to be the optimum financial outcome, but literally the reduction of debt itself is the goal for them. Showing somebody like that, that it's maybe not the best idea or that the math doesn't support paying down debt aggressively, that doesn't matter to them because literally the paying down the debt is the goal, right? And so... Uh, you know, things like that in the financial planning world tend to be like, okay, let's just understand that that's a more conservative option, right? And so I just reframe that, that it's not that it's right or wrong. It's simply more conservative. And, and that's okay, because paying down debt is not a bad thing, by definition, but it may be a less productive use of those dollars. Uh, And and so that's, that's the spot where I generally, it's not that I give up, but I, I, I'm not going to try and change somebody's opinion if that's, if that's where they're at. Right. You could just present information that's valuable and then let them internalize it. And similarly, I think that's our role, right? Is it, We're not making decisions for people. We're not choosing what they're going to do. We're here as a sounding board. We're here to present an informed opinion, a, a kind of classically trained opinion in terms of like what we know about finance, try and help people connect that with where they are and what's going to make sense for them. But at the end of the day, they're going to make their own decisions. Uh, and so I, I view that as, as how we work. And talking about a useful tool for finance and financial planning, one of the other concepts that I really loved and that I actually do in my everyday life is quantifying uncertainty as a healthy practice. So if you're, whether it's a belief or I don't know, whatever it is, right, rarely are you 100% certain about something. So just quantifying your percentage of certainty in whatever this belief is or whatever this tactic is um, as both a way of acknowledging that there could be something beyond your knowledge base that would change your opinion, 
um, but also as a way to compare your belief in one thing versus another. And if there's one thing we do in financial planning, it's quantifying uncertainty about almost any number of financial goals in our future. Yeah, so she actually gives an example uh, of that in the book where she talks about essentially creating, you know, whether it's a monetary value or, or some sort of tangible value to what you would bet on a belief, right? You know, if if you actually had to put money to it and assign a percentage chance, would you take the gamble kind of thing? Uh, and that, you know, things that you moments before felt very, very certain of when you're, you know, if the cost of being wrong is a thousand bucks or 10,000 bucks or, or, or more, right? You you might have an, a, a difference of opinion or at least a much shorter version in your confidence um, or much, much lesser confidence in, in that opinion uh, as soon as you have to actually risk something to express it. Yeah, I just played a charity golf tournament yesterday and they had a hole-in-one challenge with the BMW as the prize if you, if you hit it. And I, I think very much of that type of scenario where the sponsor of this event, I assume a BMW dealership, would put a BMW up uh, for the prize if someone hits a hole-in-one because how often is someone going to hit a hole-in-one, at least on a given day with a given group of people? Quite unlikely. Yeah. Is, is, don't they insure those? They do. You can, you can buy insurance for a hole-in-one challenge, and that's, in my mind, like the, the dollar amount that you're willing to bet to be wrong that, that no one's going to hit a hole-in-one. That's the, the scenario my mind went to, at least. Yeah, I mean, what do you think that costs versus the cost of the car? If it's a $50,000 car, what do you think it costs to insure against a $50,000 loss? I imagine it can't be a whole lot because the risk is so small. I, once upon a time, I knew this because I was actually putting on a charity golf tournament, and we went through this very thing. There was a Cadillac dealership nice enough to offer us an Escalade, uh, and the you know they were going to grab insurance for that too. And it was, it was pretty low, like not a very expensive thing to insure against. I also wonder, does like the length of the hole play into that? Like, does the insurance, like, are, are they just assuming that all hole in ones are equally unprobable or does like, you know, 175 yard par three have more like inexpensive insurance than one that's like 115? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get to the bottom of this and we're going to find out the guy I was playing with worked with an insurance company and they said they insured that type of risk. I'm going to get the answer. That's what All we're right. going to well, gonna bring that back to you either next week or, or beyond on, uh, for, for our listeners out there that, that are enjoying this aside on how much it costs to insure against a hole in one. But in any case, I think it's going to be pretty unlikely. And Dan sounds like you didn't come home with a, a new BMW yesterday. Not this time. Going back to the idea of quantifying uncertainty and figuring out how much you would bet on something being right or wrong is a really good approach to individual stock investing in particular, because that's exactly what you're doing. Every decision you're making is going to have some uncertainty. There's a risk of going down as much as there is an opportunity to go up. And if you're trying to decide which, either which position should be in your portfolio versus another or position sizing, that's a really healthy way to go about it. Because if you're trying to rank ideas, you know, that's how you build a portfolio. I am 70% 70% confident in this one, 65% confident in this one, the 70% should have a bigger position size in your portfolio than the 65% one. A hundred percent, right? And and that's, you know, even as you think about position sizing for risk, the more speculative you believe an idea is, like even if you want to take a nibble, that's okay, but understand that it might be speculative and, and position size correctly for the level of risk that you believe is there so that if you're wrong, 
you're not being bit by it, right? Or not more so than than you should be. Uh, so I, I think that there's a lot in terms of how this book played into the investing mindset for me. I, I saw those threads all the way through it. That being said, as we've talked about, I think a lot of people position size almost by accident, right? They let their winners become their big positions. And maybe that's fine. Maybe those are turning into, maybe they're proving their way into being the high confidence ideas. But going back through your portfolio and understanding, does your conviction match your portfolio's alignment, uh, I think is a very healthy exercise and a critical one that, that we should all be participating in regularly. Yeah, doing an audit of your portfolio periodically is a good way to approach that. And I agree, sometimes the one that becomes your biggest position grows in conviction along the way too, because it is continually proving itself and some of that risk goes away. Definitely. Uh, well, I'm going to give the book a thumbs up. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a very very quick listen. I think it was about a six and a half hour audio book, which I, I realized doing a 20 minute show, six and a half hours sounds like quite a bit of time. But um, for me, I consumed it fairly quickly. I also listened to audio books actually sped up just a little bit. Um, so it didn't take me quite that long to get through it. But uh, really, really enjoyed Julia's work. I think it gives us a lot of helpful stuff on questioning our own bias, understanding the opposite side of the argument, and seeking that out, seeking out opinions that are counter to your own, just to either reaffirm why you believe what you do, or to challenge yourself with some new information that that doesn't sound crazy to you. Um, so all very, very helpful, and I think healthy mental exercises. Julie is a member of my hometown community. So I'm going to shoot her a note. Julie, if you're listening by any chance, we would love to have you on. Otherwise, expect an email from me, and I look forward to a follow-up discussion on this very same topic. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Check your balances at Outlook.com is the email address for the show. If you've got questions, things you want us to weigh in on, we'd love to hear from you. We'll see you next week.